0: Hi, my name is Dan Merrick. I'm the director of plant-based culinary and development for Ruby. Welcome to our event today. Um, We are doing our Ask Me Anything hours today, which is our office hours. Um, This is an open platform for our students to be able to ask questions or anything related to cooking. So let's get started in with our questions from our students. Our first question today actually comes from Laura P. When creating a dish from scratch, how do you know apart from having already tried and or knowing your taste of your guests, which foods generally go well together and which do not? Are there any guidelines in this regard? Thank you. That's a great question. And that's actually a wonderful sign that you're really growing um, as a cook, which is wonderful too. So um, there are a couple things to do You know, with this. Primarily it is experience. The more you cook and the more you use different ingredients, the more you'll actually see how they go together. Um, I used to do an experiment with kids um, in a couple youth farms here as well, which uh, they were like community farms that the kids actually helped run, which is pretty neat. Um, And what I would do is actually get a a whole host of different ingredients um, and have the kids try them next to each other um, and then try to put them together and try them at the same time. So it might be something like um, herbs would probably be one of my big things that I have kids try as well. Um, So I might take something like cilantro and then pair it with something like an onion or put cilantro and parsley together and have those paired together as well to be able to see which ones work and which ones don't. A lot of times you can actually help this uh, dilemma by thinking about different styles of food and what ingredients are used in those kinds of ethnic cuisines that pair well, well together. There's also a great book. I actually just happen to have one that's right by me here. It's actually called The Flavor Bible. Um, This book is actually a wonderful resource. It's actually, uh, I used to say it was one of my favorite cookbooks. There's also uh, another version of it downstairs called the Vegetarian uh, Flavor Bible, if you want the one that's just um, vegetarian ingredients as well. But either one actually works really well. Um, And the way this book actually works is that it is uh, lined out, instead of having recipes, it'll line out with different ingredients and show you what pairs well with each other. So it's a great resource and it actually answers exactly the question you were looking for. So uh, this is actually written by Karen Page and Andrew Dorenberg. And it's definitely something that I would recommend. It's a great book to be able to, um, you know, page through. That's a great reference book. Again, it's not quite a culinary, you know, like a cooking or recipe uh, book, but it is a great culinary tool. So um, besides experimenting in your own kitchen and your own garden, or window bed, um, you know, with tasting different things, putting them together and tasting them together. Um, you know, having a flavor Bible, it's actually a really good resource to be able to have. But really experience is what's going to help you grow in this. So I hope that helps, Laura. On to our next question. Um. How do I create tasty dishes without salt or oil? Um, thanks, Serene. So this is actually a specialty of mine. I started cooking with no oil about 15 years ago when I was working at Whole Foods Markets um, and running a, a raw vegan venue um, at their flagship store in Austin, Texas. At this time, Whole Foods had launched their program called uh, Health Starts Here. And one of the pillars was that we didn't actually use oil in it at all. It was actually right before the launch of Forks Over Knives. And Forks Over Knives helped kind of develop out of that entire program and that thinking about no oil and whole food plant-based diets. So, um, you know, really looking at dishes to be able to avoid oil was something that um, we started immediately to try to figure out how to be able to do it. Because at the time, everything had oil. Um, You'd always see it in cooking shows and, you know, they used to do butter, big daubs of butter or whole sticks of butter into dishes. And then when um, that kind of came out of fashion, I guess, if you will, oil became the new thing. And it was always extra virgin olive oil. And they'd say you put three tablespoons in, but they'd be glugging that bottle like crazy and it'd be a lot of oil and everything. Um, So when we started doing the conversions over to uh, no oil recipes, we had to experiment quite a lot. Um, but what we found was that it wasn't needed in most of the places that we thought. Um, so, you know, the, the, especially extra virgin olive oil is one of those oils that has a low heat temperature too. So, um, you typically will burn off a lot of the flavor from it and you're getting rid of there are barely any nutrients in it to begin with, but to be able to burn them off while you're cooking with it, it just seemed kind of worthless. So um, water became my go-to dish, or my go-to substitute um, for a lot of those dishes. Um, In a lot of our classes, we'll show you how to caramelize onions with just using water. Um, That's actually a great tip to be able to start. Um, You know, you can literally cook almost anything um, in a water substitute instead of the oil. Now there are some exceptions to that rule, but most of them are actually not plant-based. Like you wouldn't want to try to fry an egg, you know, without that fat on the bottom of it. You know but pretty much everything else in our plant world will be able to cook in some way or fashion using a substitute being either water or uh, vegetable stock Um, you know there are all kinds of other things to be able to cook in except for using that oil Um, now the salt thing is a different thing as well you know most culinary schools when you graduate they tell you that you know your fat salt um are two of your biggest things you want to focus on um and salt is something i've actually never really used a lot Uh, i grew up in a family where we didn't use it a lot because of health reasons um and it just became kind of a normal thing for me um and when i started cooking professionally i didn't use a lot of salt either a lot of my chef friends were like that's crazy you don't use any salt in this and Um, the real key to that, to not using a lot of salt is using fresh ingredients that are in season because they have the most flavor in them and they have the biggest bang for their buck right away. Salt is usually added to be able to enhance the flavors out of ingredients to be able to make them taste better. Um, so the more fresh you can choose your ingredients and in season, the better, um, in season is a pretty important component of that as well, because, um, the more something is in season, um, the more flavor you're going to get out of it. Uh, If it's something something that's out of season, think of like a tomato right in the middle of winter. That tomato doesn't quite taste like a tomato anymore. Now it's been grown just like all the other tomatoes that you grow in the middle of the summer, but that tomato in the wintertime is usually coming from another country. So it usually has to travel from say very Southern Mexico to wherever you are um, in the United States or other places um, to be able to get Um, You know, that trip can take like seven to 10 days. So, that entire time after it's been picked from the vine, it's starting to lose its flavor and lose its nutrients because it's starting to decompose literally the second you take it from the vine. Um, So, choosing ingredients that are in season um, and fresh as close to you as possible is really the best way to be able to avoid salt. But I've found in my own personal life um, because you're really getting that really big pop of flavor from the ingredients instead of using salt as the crutch. Now some season, in some areas you do need to be able to have salt as a seasoning but it's pretty rare that you actually need something to be able to kick it up and typically it's just because the, the ingredients aren't in season or aren't as fresh as you'd like so I hope that helps for you. All right. From Deborah. Hi, Chef Dan. Is there a difference in cooking time versus, uh, with organic versus non-organic vegetables? Actually, there, there isn't. There's not uh, any cooking difference between the two that I can think of off the top of my head. But I've never run into that case at all. Um, organic versus conventional um, are basically the only two different things Is the conventional are spray, sprayed with pesticides um, or use pesticides to be able to control insects and animals and stuff like that from eating them. Um The organic you doesn't use those, or they use other safer versions of those, um, but pretty much all they're doing is putting a coating on the outside of the vegetables so I mean once you wash that off, which I do recommend washing them even if you have organic, but always wash them off to be able to make sure you're getting anything off of the outside but it's pretty much the same thing, so if it's you have an eggplant or um i don't know broccoli or something like that the organic version and the uh conventional version will both cook at the exact same time all right our next one steve since going plant-based or vegan i have no need for my grill uh how can a vegan or plant-based eater utilize a grill that is is it even worth it i don't think so am i wrong i would say you're wrong on that one steve no offense Um, But, yeah, you can definitely use your grill. Uh, There are a host of wonderful things to be able to do on the grill. I typically do most of my grilling in the summertime um, just because it's more pleasant outside. And it's great as an, uh, I don't want to say an outdoor kitchen because I don't have an outdoor kitchen, but a grill is part of that outdoor kitchen. So it's nice to be able to be outside and cook at the same time. Now, I'll do a host of different things beyond just like, you know, your regular veggie burgers and stuff like that. Um, but I'll do like grilled asparagus on it. I'll do different grilled vegetables on it as well. Um, we have a couple classes that cover veggie grilling in our Plant Based Pro and Plants Plus class. Um, both of those have a, a nice grilling section that Barton Siever did for us uh, to be able to show different ways to be able to cook those veggies. Um, fruits are also another wonderful thing to be able to grill. Um, you know, doing different like, things like pineapple or mango, things like that actually pulls out the, you know, the the natural sugars and starts to caramelize them when they're on the grill and they just add a whole different dynamic uh, flavor profile to fruits uh, when you grill them as well. Now, beyond just doing those kind of standard things, too, you can also think about it as other, uh, you know, ways you can actually use your grill as a pseudo pizza oven as well. So doing like grilled flatbreads and things like that. Wonderful ways to be able to add a different dynamic of flavor by uh, putting them on the grill to be able to get that natural caramelization that comes out and pulls sugars out or just putting a little bit of char on something can change the flavor profile on something. Now, if you are finding that you're not using your grill a ton, that's okay you don't have to keep the the outdoor grill they also sell little tiny versions you can do something on the inside much a lot of people are familiar with that george foreman grill they have many different types of things like that nowadays that you can actually use inside to be able to do as a grill or a grill plate that you can actually use inside as well so if you're just tired of having the large style grill in the backyard or something like that, a smaller indoor version will work as well um, if you're not using it as much. But um, it is nice to be able to have them around just for, uh, you know, some of those things. Um, but I do have to say I, I don't use my grill that often, um, you know, so it's, it's really a personal preference to you to be able to see. But I tell you what, when I do have it, I'm glad I do, because there are certain dishes that just uh, are accentuated a little bit by it. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Steve. All right. Another one from Steve here is a dietitian or nutritionist, which is more aligned with plant-based or vegan diets? Well, uh, the big difference between a dietitian and nutritionist is the dietitian actually goes to Uh, a school usually a registered dietitian is going to school or college and getting an actual degree and they have the rd that's actually behind their name now nutritionists can go to school but they're typically a little more self-taught or they follow their own path as well you can get a degree as a nutritionist but it's not doesn't have the letters behind it like a doctor would like an rd so the the registered dietitian is definitely going to have a little bit more schooling and more experience in that not saying that um, that's the case in all cases right some nutritionists really do a ton of work and really get to the level of an RD as well. They just don't have the little numbers or letters behind their name as well. Um, so that's kind of the difference between the two of them. Now, which is more aligned with plant-based or vegan diets? It, it really depends on the person, right? So um, even registered dietitians sometimes ignore the facts of the benefits of plant-based diets. More and more now, you're seeing um, that registered dietitians are completely aligned with whole food plant-based diets, especially, especially in the last five years. If you see graduates just coming out of um, you know school, like a registered dietitian school or something like that, you're going to see that they're really really well aligned with plant-based um, you know whole food diets as well now nutritionists because they're studying on their own can kind of veer depending on their own studies as well but more in line um you know the basic knowledge is going to say that the plant-based vegan diets are definitely healthier for you but uh, nutritionists can definitely take it as more of a You know take it or leave it Where the registered dietitian is basing on pure fact and um the studies that they've gone through so the answer is kind of both right so um depending on who you're seeing um, and part of that is the nutritionist aspect is finding somebody who aligns with the goals that you uh, are currently working towards as well an rd you might need to do that a little bit but more you know by by and large more registered dietitians are finding that whole food plant-based diets um, are really the way to go and that's what they're preaching so i hope that helps steve all right another one from steve here vegan chicken patties and black bean burgers i normally eat these at least once a week i've read in vegan books say to avoid if possible what are your thoughts about adding these foods to a vegan or plant based diet That's a great question. And this is completely a personal preference, Steve. So, um, you know, the the vegan chicken patties are typically pretty darn processed. There's a lot of processing that happens to the plants to be able to make them taste like chicken. And then they're breaded as well. So they have a coating as Depending on, you know, I'm not really sure what that is, depending on the patty you're actually getting as well. Now, black bean burgers, typically a little less processed, you know, but it depends on the burger. I actually love to make my black bean burgers at home from scratch um, doing, you know, which I have a couple recipes on Ruby for those as well, too. Um, But, you know, if you're picking a really clean label for your black bean burgers, and I mean by clean is a very short ingredient list and everything on that label your great grandmother could pronounce, Um, you know, like if you're picking black bean burgers like that, that are packaged, then that's much, much better. Um, You know, the chicken patties, I haven't found a real clean label chicken patty, um, you know, vegan chicken patty to say. Um, So I would probably go with the black bean burger and I actually, do uh, once a week we have uh, a burger night um, you know as kind of the easy cook night for our family and black bean burgers are one of our go-tos um, you know and we serve them in different ways we can do them on buns or on salads or all kinds of different things as well but uh, the black bean burgers are typically five ingredients uh, or less and they're baked so they're not deep fried or anything like that as well um, but it's a really good option to be able to look for for that um, and if you're making them yourself you know exactly what's in them um but again if you're going to buy them just make sure that has a short ingredient list and as clean as possible so um you know about avoiding those things that's really up to you uh you know uh, a lot of people want to go strictly whole food plant-based and if you're trying to stay whole food the chicken patty is not going to do that for you but a lot of people like the vegan chicken patties um, because it's kind of a comfort food as well and as long as you're doing it uh, you know in moderation that's totally fine um, but you know that's really up to you on how often you want to do that or if you want to do it at all so I hope that helps all right here's from dr. Jacqueline Zelinski uh, I need to know how often to sharpen my knives myself and how often to use a professional It appears to me that every chef has an opinion about what chef chef knives are best and about sharpening them. That's kind of true. And please elaborate on this vital basic subject. That's a great question, Dr. Jacqueline. Um, So let's see. The best knife. Let's just start with that. The best knife is a sharp one. Um, Everybody can tell you that this knife is going to be the best one you know they make. But it's really kind of a personal preference. Um, I like to always pick a knife that has a tang, a full tang to it. So that means that the metal that's actually, that makes up the blade actually goes through the handle as well. So you can actually see there's a, you know, like the, the metal going around the outside of the handle as well. Um, that actually just makes it so it's a safer knife. It's not going to break off at the end of that as well. So that's really one component I always tell people to look for in a knife, is to make sure that there's a full tang that goes through the entire handle as well. Now, beyond that, the best knife is a sharp one, right? So the sharper we keep our knives, the better they are. In a lot of kitchens and a lot of restaurants, one of the first things they do if you're applying as a chef is they tell you to bring out your your chef knife and see how sharp it is. And if it's not sharp, they might not hire you because those are the tools of the trade, and that's what we use. Now, how often you should sharpen your knife is a completely uh, person-to-person thing because it all depends on what you're cooking and how often you cook. So if you're using your knife a lot every single day, um, you know, if, if you're a professional and say you're making meals for a uh, thousand people every single day, you're gonna have to sharpen your knife a lot. Um, I think when I was doing you know, the top of my catering at the top of my, um, you know, uh, restaurant work, I was probably sharpening my knife at least every two to three weeks um because i could start to feel it get dull quick but that was because i was chopping like hundreds of you know onions a day or hundreds of you know ingredients and just going through lots and lots and lots of uh, cooking so my knife naturally would get duller the more i would use it Um, now home cooks in general have a much wider window because you're not cooking you know thousands of items every single day or chopping up every um, those items every single day So on average, most home cooks will sharpen their knife about every four to six months, depending on how often you're cooking in the kitchen as well. Now, that again, um, it could be sooner than that or it could be later than that. But really, the best test is the knife. Um, Are you finding that you're having to push it through the actual um, product, like say a tomato? Does it slice right through the tomato or does it push down on the skin before it actually gets through it? Now, that's a pretty good sign you want to sharpen your knife at that point. So anytime you start to feel that, that's the way to go. The other thing is, um, you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, sharpening a knife i always bring up using a steel at first so not just sharpening but actually um, honing uh, the knife so, so there's a honing tool it's kind of a long tool um, that's usually diamond plated or has some kind of plating on it and you will take your knife across it back and forth and what that's actually doing is uh when you're using your knife it basically uh, the knife tip will start to curve down on the bottom a, l- a little bit like this And this honing tool knocks it off so it's more straight um, it's a little hard to to visualize on that, but I'll just use my phone for an example, right? So um, if I, my blade, if you're looking at it straight on like this, it'll actually start to curve down a little bit, but using that honing tool will knock it off. So it's sharp on the bottom of, of that as well. Now it's not sharpening it. What it's doing is taking that little curve and putting it back into place. So you're still getting that kind of V-tip at the end, instead of having it curve over to one side like that. So using a honing tool will actually to knock it off. So it's really you know has that sharp edge at the very end is great but a lot of times it's actually taking off a little bit of the top edge too so it is uh you know making it a little less dull but it's definitely sharper than if it was just curved over like this so i actually use a honing tool almost every time i cook um it's one of the first things i do when i get into a kitchen is i'll pull out my knife and then the honing tool to sharpen it really quick And in all honesty, at my home kitchen, I probably do that every four days or so. Um, But if I'm doing it professionally and I'm in a kitchen, I'm going to do it pretty much every single day that I pick up a knife. Um, Now, that will keep your blade much sharper for much, much longer. And you continue to do that like every four days or, you know, um, every so often to be able to make that happen. Now, that will actually you'll see it'll cut through that tomato really, really easily. Um, But if it stops doing that after using the honing tool, that's when you want to sharpen again. Um, now, I, there are a couple different ways to be able to sharpen your knife using a stone, a wet stone is probably one of the best ways to do it. You can also use an electric sharpener as well, but those can tend to take a lot off leave marks, depending on your knives as well, too. Um, now, I do those 100% of the time. Uh, I don't take my knives to get professionally sharpened because I'm used to doing it um, in either using a wet stone or an electric sharpener myself. Uh, but you know, I know many people that take them to professionals, especially if you have like a lot of knives you need to get done, but I typically just pick it out a date, you know, every couple of months where I'm going to go in and just sharpen every single knife in my knife block, um, just to make sure that everything's really, really nice. Now, uh, again, that's, I cook quite often. So every couple of months I have to sharpen them, but on average, it's about four to six months for everybody. I hope that helps a little bit all right so laura um i'm aware of the value of uh, the and importance of using a chef knife while cutting food but when it comes to cutting smaller ingredients like garlic cherry tomatoes wouldn't a smaller knife like a paring knife do the job uh, while also being safer so safer might not be the best way to explain that but um you know part of that is just doing what's comfortable for you right so i pretty much use a chef knife for everything when i to use a paring knife it is much smaller work Um, Now, for cherry tomatoes, yeah, like I would probably use a uh, paring knife to be able to do those. And I actually use a trick where I'll take two plates and put them over, you know, I'll have like the cherry tomatoes on my plate, then I'll put the other plate on top, and then I'll take my knife and cut through them. Now that's actually use a serrated knife because that way I can have a ton of tomatoes all at once by using that technique. Um, so I'll actually use like a bread, you know, serrated knife to be able to do that. But paring knives are usually used to do small, intricate work. So if I'm going to do something like radishes, I'm going to make like radish flowers or something like that. Or if I'm peeling potatoes or something like that, I'll use my paring knife as well. Um, now the garlic is the only one that I'm kind of like, eh, I might use a, uh, you know, an actual chef knife on that. And that's primary. Early because when you smash your garlic, so you want to put your garlic on your cutting board and then turn your knife to the side and then smash it on top so it just kind of flays out that garlic um, really well. And then it's just really easy to chop after that. Now, you can't quite do that with... Um, you can't quite do that with a, uh, a paring knife. You have to have the wide uh, edge of a chef knife. So um, that's the only part that I'm like, eh, you might want to use a chef knife for that. But really, I mean, if the paring knife feels better for you for doing the tomatoes and smaller stuff like that, that's totally fine. Um, there's definitely a use for each one of those knives, but um, part of it is just what feels comfortable to you. Uh, when I started building the class for Jacques Pepin, I was always surprised that he was always using these little tiny knives, and he uses them for a lot of different things. And you know, Jacques Pepin has been one of the leading chefs for a very long time. Um, But he doesn't use a chef knife all the time. And part of that is just because it really is what's comfortable to you. And you'll see that different trends kind of happen through the years for knives as well. A lot of times people use much thinner knives. um, um, But the chef knife for me is actually the go-to all the time. It's the tool that I use 99% of the time. And the paring knife comes in second. But um, do what feels comfortable to you. Thanks for the question, Laura. All right. So a sakia. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that um, any ideas to cook wild rice. So, yeah, uh, wild rice definitely is going to be a little bit different to cook. there are typically instructions on how to do the different grains that you're getting because there are different kinds of wild rice so I can't give you an exact answer and like here's the exact amount of ratio of water and cooking time because really depending on where you're getting it um, and what kind of rice because there's a wild there's a huge variety of different wild rice rices Um, but it does take longer to cook Um, you typically when it's done you'll see the rice kind of open up and bloom up a little little bit um so it's one of those rices you definitely have to keep an eye on kind of like beans sometimes beans never quite cook the same way um you know and aren't as fast as like the label says but wild rice is typically one of those that you do have to keep an eye on to be able to make sure that it's cooking properly and cooking all the way Um, i like it when it starts to bloom out a little bit like that because it softens it up some people like it where it's like right before it blooms so you still have a big toothy feel on it as well but i wish there was a better very clear answer for that, but it really depends on the variety of rice you're using. Um Aravind. So I'm exploring dehydrating vegetables and greens to enjoy them enjoy them as snacks uh, and salted. What are some recipe suggestions, including entry-level equipment to, needed to do this? Well, that's great. Uh dehydrating is a lot of fun. Um, and Really, depending on what your interests are in it, you can go a huge variety of different ways. But if you're going with greens, actually one of my favorites to do is kale chips. And, you know, kale chips are a great thing. Like my kids even love them as snacks, and they're toddlers, you know. So basically what I do for kale is I'm going to wash the kale and then tear them off into bite-sized pieces. And then I'm going to make a cashew cream, very much like our cashew bechamel or something like that we use in some of the courses. So it's basically soaking cashews overnight and then blending them up after you after you dump the water, blend them up with a little bit of lemon juice um, and maybe some champagne vinegar, maybe like half a lemon and. Tablespoon or two champagne vinegar and then add your seasonings to that after you blend it all once it gets a little smooth You'll probably need a little water to get it smooth But then add your seasonings if you want like a chipotle version put some chipotle powder in there Maybe a little garlic powder, um, you know, and you can go a variety of ways. I've even made like a ranch style, you know um, That my wife loved. Uh, you know, she grew up in the Midwest and that was one of the flavor profiles she loved So I basically uh, copied a ranch style and did it with a cashew cream instead. And then you basically mush it all into your, uh, your kale um, and then put it in the dehydrator. Now, a lot of people don't have dehydrators, which you don't actually need. You'll find that you can actually put, um, if it's a gas oven, you can actually put uh, it right into your oven and just keep it off and keep it in there for about 24 to 48 hours and it'll help dehydrate as well. I haven't done that for a long time and I knew it took longer than it needed. But a dehydrator is probably the best way to be able to go. Now, there are a lot of different versions of dehydrators. They're really, really expensive ones and they're ones that don't cost a lot. And the ones that don't cost a lot are perfect for home use. If you're not doing it professionally and catering kitchens and stuff like that, a home dehydrator can cost you less than $50. Um, and that's really a good way to be able to start. Uh, so putting it in um, your kale chips like that into a dehydrator for 24 hours is gonna get them really, really, really crispy. Now, if you're doing other things, um, you know, other vegetables, Part of that is just kind of doing a little bit of marinade on them, depending on what you're using them for. But exploring with flavor profiles is wonderful to be able to do with those. I actually love doing some of the fruit pastes that you can actually make into uh, like the fruit poles and stuff like that. And then um, you can also do either great crusts, like raw crusts, like a pizza crust or crackers are really fun things to be able to do. Maybe like a little bit of flaxseed and some pepper, um, you know, ground up and you can do a lot of fun things with dehydrating. So have fun with that. Um, all right. So Kimmy, Alyssa, uh, I'd love to start and or strengthen the movement for chefs to embrace their power to help improve people's health with every dish they create. I love this. Is there something like that in motion or can we begin it? Yes, yes, let's begin it, Kimmy. I love this. Um, So yeah, there are a lot of ways for uh, chefs to really embrace their power to um, help improve health. Um, there are a lot of people out there doing a lot of different things now to be able to help that. Um, people, you know, doing blogs, vlogs, all kinds of things like that as well. Um, but one of the ways I find personally to really help in the best way is to help with kids and really get uh, them to have a good understanding of what food is, where it comes from, and uh, the effects it has on our environments as well. Um, there are the generation that's coming up now is really food centric. They're really interested in it. Um, You know, there are a lot of young kids now that grew up with chefs as entertainers instead of cartoons, which is pretty wild to see. Um, And so they look up to chefs a lot. They want to know about where their ingredients are from, they want to know how they're grown. You know, um, I used to work for an organization that gave away school gardens, um, and it was amazing to be able to see the education that these kids were getting specifically just from growing a fruit or a vegetable because they knew exactly where it came from. Like That's probably one of the best ways that you can really help improve people's health is to be able to help in some of those ways. And um, cooking classes for kids, always a fun thing to be able to do as well. Um, you know, you don't have to charge for them. I used to do them all the time where I'd, uh, you know, basically get groups of kids together and show them how to do little fun things that they could all create. And that could be something from just how to roll sushi from pre cut ingredients to be able to have them do, or how to make a chili where everybody adds a certain ingredient into it and it cooks down in something like a crock pot or something like that. Um, but, you know, there are a host of different ways to be able to uh do this and i love that you have this passion around that and i really um you know I'm wishing you the best in it because there's a lot of different ways to be able to help those are just a few but um hopefully that leads you in the right direction all right so grace please answer how do i cook black beans until they're soft they stay hard i've tried soaking them overnight added kombu thank you for your response yeah grace uh, black beans are one of those beans that uh they're not, they're just like the wild rice, they're not always going to come out the same because each one of those little. You know, beans is very unique to its own. So they're not all going to cook at the exact same time. Um, A lot of times people will use, like I don't use uh, like the Instapots to do beans specifically because of that. Because Instapots just set an exact timer on it. And then when it's done, it stops cooking. And black beans don't work that way. They're very non-compliant, right? So they're just like, they're the rebel of beans. Um, You know, kombu and soaking them overnight is a super good start. I do that every time I'm going to cook black beans. So I'm going to soak them overnight, and I'm going to drain off the water that's in them, start with new water, add kombu to the pot, and then bring it to a boil and down to a simmer and cook it for a while, a long time. And the key to cooking black beans, and um, it really is, the key is, uh, I love to do it in a, in a pot on a stove um, to start off. I do love to be able to do the kombu, but the key is really keeping an eye on it and letting um, it go to the point where you see the beans are done, tasting them as they go. There's real, no exact science to it. Like this is exact number of minutes you need to do or number of seconds to cook it, depending on the altitude you're in as well. There's all kinds of different things that are out there. So again, I always say the black beans are kind of the renegade of the beans they don't uh, like listening to the rules. Right. So, um, you know, keeping them uh, on your stovetop and keeping them on there for a while, Um, um, and keep tasting them until they're all done. And don't just taste one, taste like a whole spoonful, you know, because each one of those little beans is gonna be different and uh, the bigger the spoonful you get, the more you're gonna be able to see if they're no longer hard and they actually get soft in the way we want them. So I wish I could have an exact answer for it, but there isn't one for that. Black beans, definitely that renegade bean. So um, cook them on a stove top and keep an eye on them and let them go longer than sometimes recommended all right so steve uh wife and i went plant-based this year we normally host thanksgiving and she wants to continue the same animal products she made before we switched our diet do you have a recommendation how we can entertain guests and still stay true to our diet um yeah so i think that's two questions if she wants to cook meat and the animal products that she used to uh, if that's a passion of hers i would let her do it um you know because sometimes people and the rest of our family aren't quite ready to make that switch over. And uh, if you're doing it for a holiday event, sometimes that can be a little odd (laughs) for them, not for you. Um, But for them, they might show up and they might be full-on carnivores and show up, and I was like, where's the meat at this table? I'm not going to like anything. Now, that being said, I can't tell you how many times I've hosted events where everybody was like, holy cow, I didn't realize there was no meat on this table at all. Um, now, part of that is you know being kind of unique and looking for different flavor profiles that maybe some of your guests are looking for. Um, uh, so, my family for you know holiday events, we have a mix of meat eaters and non-meat eaters. Uh, over the years, uh, you know it's been 25 years or so since I've eaten meat. Um, probably longer than that. Um, But over the years, you'll see my family has gone more towards the plant-based style, where before I was just eating side dishes at the beginning. But the longer everybody saw, um, you know, we all cooked together, the more they started going towards the plant-based as well. And so now for something like Thanksgiving, when they might cook like a small, you know, like a quail or something like that, you know, and it's off to the side and maybe one person eats that one thing. Well, that's okay, but that's, again, personal preference. I didn't have to cook it, so I'm not worried about it. If, um, you know, that's what they do for their Thanksgiving, and that's what they, you know, that's part of their tradition. That's fine. Um, but what I always do is look for really nice, decadent dishes that are plant-based that everybody's going to go for first, and they're going to forget about any of the animal products as well. Um, if you look through the dashboard on Ruby, you'll find the live events and you can go through and arch- look through the archive of live events. And if you look up my name, Dan Merrick, you'll see that I've done a couple of these holiday events where it's holiday cooking. I know we just did one recently too, before the holidays, where um, Fran and Martin did some of the events as well. So uh, each one of those has got some great plant-based dishes um, to be able to look at. Uh, The Mushroom Wellington is one that's very popular that I like to do every year for the holidays. Um, And it's not a ton of work actually, which is nice. So uh, the key for doing the the plant-based diets for those holidays is look for things that everybody's going to love. You know, it's okay to go a little more decadent for the holidays than you would on your normal meals, um, because it is the holidays. You want it to be something that's memorable and be like, ah, oh, you look forward to every year, right? And so if you have those kinds of dishes, what people are looking forward to every year, they're going to completely forget about the animals that are missing off of the table. Um Hopefully, so I hope that helps a little bit. Um, Part of that is just uh, the transition for your family um, and for your guests as well, and just trying to make everybody comfortable in that transition. I hope that helps, Steve. Pablo. Hi, Chef Dan. I've been a wine aficionado for a number of years. How do I incorporate this passion into my new plant based way of life? Thanks, Pablo. So, a lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of wines are actually not vegan. They typically will use something like an egg yolk or uh, a rennet or animal, um, you know, even milks and stuff to be able to get some of the solids that they can't get out of wine by using those animal products to get out, um, out of those uh, wines so doing a little bit of research helps a lot um there was recently an article on the wine aficionado Um, it's actually what is vegan wine and how do you actually find it um it was in the canter magazine i think it was um and that's actually a really good kind of explanation of wines and uh, looking for vegan wines as well a lot of manufacturers now are realizing that there are a lot of people looking for wines that have you know, no animal products in them. In fact, Guinness actually just switched their recipe like after you know a very long time of making it the same way where Guinness is now vegan, whereas just five years ago it wasn't. Um but they're just getting rid of the animal product in the rennets they were using to be able to separate out any particles that were left over in them as well. That's the same thing with the wines. You'll see a lot of manufacturers are starting to veganize their wine just by switching the, animal or the, the product that they're using. Instead of using an animal-based product, they'll go with like a pea protein instead of an egg or something like that. Um, but unfortunately, they don't usually put like the label on it saying there's animal product in this wine, you know, because there's not an ingredient label typically on it. And rennet is one of those things that's pretty small to be able to put on those. So doing a little bit of research on your wines is really the best way to go. Um, what I do is I typically have like a house wine that I find that I like, I'll research some of them, taste a couple of ones from that certain year, and then uh, you know, go with that wine it's kind of a house wine so i just know it's safe every time and i know the flavor profiles um and i'll typically go with a couple of reds and a white to be able to you know pair with different dishes depending on the seasons too but uh yeah if you are going to 100 plant-based you definitely have to start researching your wines and sometimes beers but not often as much on beers but um but wines are one of those you want to be able to take a look at so pablo continue to be that aficionado. Um, that's wonderful. Um, and, you know, the, the more uh, education you get, uh, always share it as well. I think that the more um, people ask for, you know, the the labels to say if it's a vegan or plant-based wine, um, people might actually start doing that on wine bottles. So um, hopefully that helps out. Um, Aravand, so there was a recommendation from someone that spinach should not be smoothied because it can use calcium to bind and cause kidney stones over time of continuous consumption. Do you agree with this and have you known this to happen? So I'm a chef not a doctor so that's actually not a question I can really answer into it. Um, I've heard of you know uh, some kind of combinations with spinach um, you know, and calcium, but I thought it was, I'm not sure it was to bind, but either way, I'm not qualified to answer that question. That's definitely something you want to talk to a doctor about. Um, I've personally not had anything happen in my family or known anybody that that's happened to, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So that's a question you need to consult a doctor um, or maybe a registered dietitian on as well. Um, Sorry, can't give you the answer on that one, but so Lisa, uh, what is the best way to achieve caramelization when um sauteing i love browning uh and caramelizing veggies and i'm having a hard time when not using oil <laughs> save our ship SOS. so um the best way to achieve caramelization is letting it sit a little bit right so depending on the pan you're using if you're using a non-stick pan it's harder to see But if you're using like a stainless steel pan you can see it a lot quicker And it's the browning that happens on the bottom of the pan and a lot of people don't realize that that brown is actually the caramelization. Those are the natural sugars that are just sticking to the pan. Now, the trick is, is to deglaze the pan. And deglazing is just a fancy word for rinsing it with water. So for our onion example, if you're, uh, you know, you take sliced onions and you get your pan up to a medium-high heat-ish. If you put a drop of water into it, you should start to see that water kind of beat up a bit. And that's actually the perfect time to be able to put your onions into it. Uh, you put the onions in, let them sit for a minute, um, and then you will if you move them a little bit, you'll start to see a little brown underneath that. That's actually a great time to deglaze with just maybe a tablespoon or two of water to be able to get the brown off of the pan back onto the onions. One of the old chef adages is you never leave brown on the bottom of the pan because that's where all the flavor is. It's so true. It's actually all that caramelization is where the natural sugars and the big flavors are coming out. So... You definitely don't want to leave that stuff on the bottom of the pan. So deglazing just with a little bit of water will actually bring those sugars and coat the onion again, and it'll start to cook the other sides of it as well, too. And then you can just do that again, um, you know, a couple different times to be able to get the true caramelization down. Now, if you're looking for a caramelization that's like deep, deep brown, you'll have to do this process a number of times. If you're just wanting a light caramelization on it, just a couple times will be fine. Um, but that's really the best way to be able to get that caramelization down on different vegetables too. You can do it on all kinds of different ones. Um, I once did a cooking demonstration for a woman. Where was I at? I think this was in Denver. Um, And she uh, watched the demonstration and then she contacted me six months later and told me she lost 40 pounds. I was like, wow, how did you do that? And she's like, you know, I didn't listen to everything you did, but I did listen to not cooking with oil. And so she still ate like, you know, chicken and things like that too, but she uh, did it with no oil and she lost 40 pounds in that six months, which is pretty amazing. Um, But the same thing she was doing, she was getting a little bit of caramelization on the bottom of her meats even and just using the water to deglaze and it basically unstuck the chicken off of it and still had a brown edge on it. I haven't cooked chicken in like over 25 years, as I've said, but to know that that actually works on meat products too is a pretty cool thing. Um, but for vegetables, it's a much easier process. Uh, and, you know, doing that with just a little bit of water or vegetable stock can really change the flavor profile on certain things, too. So I hope that does help a little bit. All right, Lisa. So any good ideas for plant-based breakfasts? I love to do a brunch and want to wow my book club. when, uh, only- uh, they know I'm all taking plant-based, the Ruby plant-based course. So the plant-based course actually has some great breakfast recipes in it. Like uh, a stand, Like this morning I did breakfast tacos, but I'm from Texas. We do breakfast tacos a lot. But I did it with a tofu scramble. And my tofu scramble typically just, you know, like a quarter of an onion and a handful of mushrooms. And I'll saute those to get them caramelized. And then I'll crumble in my tofu, a little bit of garlic powder, and then turmeric, and salt and pepper, and barely any salt uh because too much salt will actually bring the turmeric out more um know i just don't, don't use salt much but that's actually one of my go-to's now if you're looking to really kind of go that extra step there's a whole lot of things especially for brunch which people like to do more, a little more decadent things so you could do something like do a vegan hollandaise um and put that over maybe a tofu scramble on top of an english muffin and maybe do uh you know you could do like a shiitake or a portobello mushroom that you have like you know, where you smoke it and do like a bacon kind of version out of it. Um, I do that often with shiitake mushrooms, but I'll basically, what that mixes is a little bit of tamari, smoked salt, or you could use liquid smoke uh, as well. I'll add some paprika and, uh, let's see, a little garlic powder and a little onion powder, that's it. You put it in the oven in a sheet pan for 40 minutes, uh flipping it halfway through and you typically have to scrape the mushroom off the bottom but if you do that and you put that on like an english muffin the the mushrooms a little bit of uh tofu scramble and a nice hollandaise and a maybe a tomato on there and season a little garnish on top of greens that sounds like a pretty darn good brunch to me you know so um Look around for different ingredients or different, uh, you know, examples of plant-based brunches. There's a lot of different ways to be able to do them, depending on how decadent and how much time you want to spend. But if you really, really want to wow them, you might want to go with something a little bit uh, something a little bit different on that as well, too. Um, but yeah, the breakfast tacos are always my go-to. But if you want to go fancier, um, try something like the, you know, the, uh, uh, I guess that would be like a Benedict, like a vegan Benedict. All right. All um, right. Shakia, hi chef, how do you select a knife as a beginner to start practicing? Should we buy the entire kit or a particular knife? That's a great question. So depending on the kit, right? um, If you're a plant-based chef, there are some knives you're just not ever going to use. You're not gonna use like a boning knife or a filleting knife as much as well. The one knife that I would recommend is buying a chef knife, um, which is typically eight to 10 inches long. Um, You know, typically, you know, yeah, it's about 8 to 10 inches long. You don't have to spend a ton of money on it. One of the most important things is being able to feel it, right? So uh, there are a lot of specialty stores out there that will let you try out their knives on a cutting board just to be able to see how they feel in your hand. Um, That doesn't mean you have to buy them from them as well. So you might find it somewhere cheaper, but you can at least try them at some place. So I highly recommend going to a place where you can actually hold the knife in your hand and feel how the handle feels in your hand. It should feel comfortable. Now, um, when you're practicing with it at the store, make sure you're putting a bit of pressure on it because there is a certain point on a knife, and I wish I had one in my hand right now, but um, there's something called a chef callus where you get right here and it's where you're holding your knife You basically put one finger on one side, then put the other finger on the the blade like this, right? and I'm holding my handle curved like that. So uh, what happens is sometimes that blade can go up and hit this part of your finger as you're holding it like that when you're chopping. Um, So that's one of those areas to be able to kind of feel if it's comfortable hitting you right here, but more importantly, how it feels directly in your hand. Um, And that's really one of the best ways to be able to start picking a knife, especially for a beginner. Now, you will need other knives down the road, but pretty much um, your chef knife, partnered with a good, like bread serrated knife, um, and then a smaller paring knife should pretty much get you through a good while. Now, there are other specialty knives that you might need over the years, but um, those three knives will pretty much do everything you need them to. Whenever I'm traveling, those are the three knives I take with me everywhere, and I don't need anything else. I might need others, but it's usually to share them with somebody else if I'm in the kitchen. All right. So, Jerry Ann, hello, chef. Do you have a good whole food, plant based, no oil, pumpkin custard recipe? I don't actually. Um, uh, let's see. A pumpkin, like I could probably come up with one off the top of my head, but if you're doing whole food, plant based, and no oil, pumpkin custard. So, let's see. I would probably go something a little more decadent with that, but you might not want to. I'd probably go with a, like a coconut milk and then the pumpkin and then um, blend up some uh, other things to be able to go into them. So what I would use is probably dates. I'd soak the dates maybe for four hours-ish, put dates in the bottom of a cup, and then just top them off with a little bit of water and then blend them up with your blender until they become a paste. Now you can take that paste and use it to sweeten um, something like the pumpkin. So you can take a can of pumpkin and your can of uh, coconut, coconut milk and then put in your dates into that a little pumpkin spice if you want to as well and blend that entire thing up and it might come out to the custard consistency you're looking for i might want to change the consistency a little bit but not even trying that recipe just literally kind of coming up with it off the top of my head that will probably be a good start Um, otherwise try googling some stuff and see what you come up with but i don't have one off the top of my head um, that i have right now all right so from aravide with so many dishes out there, such, or so many diets out there, such as keto, low carb, high fat, ho- high protein, high carb, etc., it can be difficult to know what to follow for your optimal health. What diet or eating pattern do you follow yourself? That's a great ending to your question, because I thought you were going to ask what I recommend for you. Um, now, I tell everybody that your diet is like a fingerprint. It's completely unique to you. Now, it doesn't matter if your brother or sister grew up right alongside of you. Your Their eating um, styles could be completely different from you, just depending on where, they, where you guys both went after you grew up and went out of the house. Um, diets are completely situational to every single person. And just because uh, where we all grow up and the ingredients that are available to us, the uh, food and the cooking styles that are available to us, can really um, be different for everybody. Now, me personally, I'm glad you ended with that because I can't recommend a certain diet for any one person um, because everybody's completely different, but the diet pattern that I follow myself is definitely more whole food, plant-based diet. Now, I do use oil, but I use it very sparingly. I also use salt, unbelievably sparingly. I barely use salt at all, but I will use oil um, to be able to kind of get things going fast. No, that doesn't mean I use it all the time. And if I do use it, I'm typically going to use it in like one of the spray oils um, Where you have to pump the top and spray it out and that way I'm not using a lot of it I used to always tell people if you are going to use oil put a drop in the bottom of your pan and then wipe the pan down to be able to get the excess oil out because really what most people are using oil for is to create a nonstick surface. And if you're not caring about the flavor of the oil at all, that's pretty much what you're using it for. Right. So um, I try to go very low oil on things um, and I keep whole food plant based. Now, that means I cook a lot. Now, as a chef, that probably be expected. But I mean, I cook every single meal for us uh, pretty much every single week. We don't go out to eat that often. Um, We didn't really before the pandemic uh, either. And part of that is because the more you cook at home, you'll find that the ingredients you know, um, you can pick out every single thing that you actually uh, is in all of your dishes, which is great. And I actually like to know all of those things. So if I'm going to eat something at a restaurant, it could easily be a huge calorie meal. And I don't know 100% of all the ingredients are in it. So I typically cook all of our dishes at home as well now do we have shortcuts yes we totally do have shortcut nights um there might be a night where i'm working late and uh, my wife instead of having to cook and watch the kids will do something quick and easy like a veggie burger night like i talked about we have kind of two cheat nights we use one of them is a pizza night and one of them is a veggie burger night um now most times we're actually going to use a house-made veggie burger um to be able to make it again so it's uh really you know easy to be able to figure out exactly all the ingredients in it and or keeping it safe if you will um, and if we do buy something like a veggie burger it's typically um, it used to be Amy's but we've switched up recently um, but going with a kind of a cleaner you know brand on those as well too um, so what i actually follow is a whole food plant-based diet with a little bit of oil on it to be able to make that uh, answer a little bit shorter there so I hope that helps our um, as well so for sugar control what are the best sources of carbohydrates uh, vegan only. So for sugar control, what are the best source of, ve- of carbohydrates? Um, not 100% sure how to answer that question, and I think what you're trying to do is lower, make sure you're not getting a lot of sugar from the carbohydrates. Now carbohydrates are found in most vegetables, so um, you know, as long as you're keeping them to a whole, you know, a whole grain or, a, 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 you know, a whole grain or actual vegetables, those are definitely going to be the better carbohydrates to go to. For sugar control, not 100% sure where to answer on that one as well, but if you're looking for best source of carbohydrates, always look for those whole grains or just the actual fruit or vegetable itself. Um, not 100% sure if that's what you're asking, but I'll stick with that. So Natalie, uh, hello and thank you very much for this event. My grandpa was a baker and since the age of four, I've been baking um unfortunately as a vegan i'm not pleased with the egg replacer aquafaba bananas i hate the taste chia seeds they make the cake very hard that will happen natalie um okay so there are a host of different ways to be able to do an egg replacer and vegan recipe um but they part of this is experimentation and baking is the hardest part i think in uh switching to a whole food plant-based diet because there hasn't been a ton of great work in it now with the exception um you know fran who is the director of plant-based desserts for ruby i think that's her title is an amazing resource for this so definitely go into the live links here and do um look up some of the stuff that she's listed on because i know there are some store-bought brands that actually work really well for egg replacers and for butters actually and there's different kinds for different things that you're going to cook Um, Really, for baking, though, it's uh, an experimentation game that people have been playing for a bit to be able to get these exact flavor profiles are looking for. But Fran has actually done a wonderful job on this. So if you're really looking to do more baking, I might want to check out Fran's class that we offer through Ruby as well. Um, But for egg replacers, yeah, there's a, a list here that you'll see is kind of vegan egg substitutes. But depending on what you're cooking, some of them work and some of them don't. But uh, I would definitely inquiry Fran on that too. Look up some of her live events and that will probably help you with that uh, adventure, which uh, it's a fun one. All right, so Arvan, what do you eat for breakfast on a typical day? So uh, I typically, I switch it off, you know, so um, I get up with my toddlers in the morning and they will typically do like a big bar kind of a thing and then fresh fruit. Um, we'll do oatmeal a lot. Uh, we'll, you know, chop up apples in a little tiny pieces with some cinnamon and maybe some almond milk and oats. Um, and then we will also, you know, like I said, the veggie tacos are pretty common for me. Like I love, you know, I do love veggie tacos. So, um, you know, doing a, uh, um, like a a tofu scramble is pretty much my go-to 100% of the time not 100% of the time but 90% of the time but other veggies in the morning are actually great to be able to do those too and why do I like those well they're kind of easy you can just fold them up and you can take them anywhere so if I'm chasing after the kids doing different things I can still be eating my breakfast um, but that's typically what I'm going to do because either veggie tacos oatmeal fresh fruit isn't always it's 100% on the plate every single morning um, and that's a mix between what's in season. You know, sometimes it's harder to find those fresh fruits in season, but they're typically going to be like, you know, strawberries and blueberries and grapes and raspberries um, to be able to kind of get uh, that started. And my kids love it, and it's one of the first things they go to eat as well. And they'll, they'll eat their breakfast tacos too, but typically a little half a taco or something with a little bit of, you know, a pico de gallo or something on it to just, to just be able to change it up. Um, All right, so Yvonne, what is the ideal room temperature to ferment cashew cheese? That's a great question. I have not seen that on this uh, platform yet. Now, typically when you're fermenting a cashew, um, you know, I've done it for different dishes before. Uh, a room temperature at about 72 degrees is ideal. Um, now, depending on the cheese that you're doing, I think you might be talking about one of the rolled cheeses that we offer through. We actually know those are macadamia nuts. But yeah, so anytime i have actually done the cashew cheese, I'm usually doing it at a room temperature of about 72 degrees in kind of a dark area, you know. So I've usually done it, um, you know, kind of walk-in areas, but, uh, you know, keeping it kind of yeah, about 72 degrees is what that is. A walk-in refrigerator is actually too cold now I'm thinking about it, but to ferment it, you'd keep it out on the uh, on, on the counter at a room temperature. So 72 degrees is about that you know area that I try to aim for. Hope that helps. Uh, Jenny, um, I now use the forks over knives recipe for veg stock, but was using a pressure cooker recipe and noticed it would separate when refrigerated. What causes, what does it, mean is it a very inferior stock I'm not sure which Forks Over Knives recipe uh, for stock you're talking about but um, it's interesting that it's separating on you and I think um, because typically when you're separating that means that the oil is separating or the fat is rising to the top which happens which with any stock that has fat in it and I'm pretty sure Forks Over Knives wouldn't give you one that had oil in it and they definitely wouldn't give you one that had meat in it Um, so I think probably what's happening is you're seeing some of the particles probably settle to the bottom of your stock. Um, and what that basically means is when you're, um, making your stock and you're putting it through the strainer, your strainer's not catching all the particles that would actually go through that. Um, and when it sits in like say a mason jar or a bell jar or something like that, or ball jar, um, what happens, you'll see the little particles start to come to the bottom of the jar. It's actually pretty normal to happen. Usually, I mean, I make fresh stock almost every week. It's pretty rare I don't make a vegetable stock or have a big jar of uh, jar of stock in my fridge. Um, and I do it out of scraps, to be completely honest, most of the time. Um, if I'm doing something like a dashi, I'll do it, you know, on the fly from scratch. But... Uh, primarily though, um, I'm not going to filter it the whole way either. And, uh, when I take it out, I'm basically going to shake the jar up to be able to get all those little specks of vegetables, to be able to kind of coat through the entire thing And My stocks are typically a little more brown than yellow because of that. But if you want to not have that happen and you want a very clean, very glossy, very, you know, uh, you know, super clean stock, you'll have to, you know, basically, uh, filter it more. And so instead of just going through your strainer, you'll also probably have to go through a cheesecloth and probably a couple times to make sure that you catch all of that excess. Um, but going through a typical strainer and then going through cheesecloth like maybe four to five times will make it so you have none of that uh, extra residue in there. And it should come out as a very super duper clean stock. I like the little extra in there. I'm not sure if it adds flavor, but it probably adds a little bit of nutrient and fiber to it as well, too. I hope that helps, Jenny. Um, Alfreda, I've been hearing quite a lot about sumac lately. What do you say about that? Well, I love sumac. It's a a great um, you know flavor that you can add to different things to kind of give a little pop of something that most people aren't used to. Um, you know, sumac is something I grew up in the Midwest and was used to having wild sumac grow kind of all over the place. So it's something that I grew up with. Um, and I'm very familiar with on the flavor profiles, but adding just a little dash of it to different things can just totally brighten up a dish or, you know, turn it into this whole other thing. And it's, there's something about it. It's like this kind of, it's almost like a acidic umami-ish kind of flavor to it. That's just so unique. Um, but yeah, it's, that, try out some sumac and really, I think it's best to experiment with some things. Try it on things you've already had to be able to get the full flavor profiles out of it um you know but yeah sumac's becoming trendy lately i thought saw many things in bon appetit using it in the past like three years i was a little surprised by it but i i have a jar of it in my spice rack right now that i use um i don't use it a lot but i do like it you know just to kind of switch things up a little bit i hope that helps lisa what is kombu kombu is actually a seaweed it's typically grown in You know, I think most of it's grown in the Japan area, but it is a very long seaweed. You typically get it dried, um, you know, in strips about like this big or something like that in a square. Um, And it is wonderful for cooking in beans. Um, I actually made kombu bacon out of it as well, too, using the process. I talked about the mushrooms earlier, but you saute it in a pan. And I think there's oil involved in that one and thinking about it, Um, but kombu is a seaweed, and it's really great for nutrients, it adds nutrients into things you're cooking with, Um, I use it in stocks, specifically dashi stocks, like Japanese stocks, where it's like a shiitake mushroom and um, kombu, basic combination, Um, but super great, Uh, do a little bit of research on it, and pick up some, because you'll start to enjoy it, and it really adds a lot of nutrients to it. Um, Alright, so Laura, Chef Dan, thank you so much for your answer and the resources you provided. Can't wait to dive in. Great, glad to help, Laura. Uh, Donna, hello, Chef Dan. Please tell me how to bake cornbread without oil or egg. I've tried increasing the applesauce and other liquids and my cornbread is hard and tastes like flour. That's no fun. Um, let's see. And Thank you, Donna. So. Wow, I can't remember what her name is, but there is a cornbread recipe that I've used for a long time. And like if you Google award-winning, uh, Google award-winning vegan cornbread, I'm gonna do this on the fly right now. Uh, vegan cornbread and see if I can find it really quick for you it's not something I typically do. Here it is. It's Dana Sly's Blue Ribbon Vegan Cornbread. This is the recipe that I've been using. um, And I think it's like it was originally on a different site, but this is actually the one that I I use. And it's quite good. And it's very simple, um, easy to throw together. And for, you know, being in Texas, we get a lot of Southern recipes here. That's probably the one that I found that was probably the best one there so i'll have richard post that and it might take him a second to be able to get that in there Um, but thanks for your question on that we also have one on ruby too actually should probably point you towards the ruby side as well uh but that's the one i found and i use personally most often um aravon is avocado considered healthy for someone with heart disease um you're aiming to reduce uh more plaque buildup okay yeah so uh depending you know so People in, in that situation, well, here's, this is a doctor's question again. So I can't really tell you too much on the doctor aspect, but I can tell you that I do know from just reading Dr. Esselstyn's work a lot that avocado is definitely a healthier alternative for um, in, to oil, you know? So, you know, you can still have a higher cholesterol that builds up crazily from oil, which is wild. Like your good and bad cholesterol levels will kind of switch around a little bit. But um for uh you know avocado wise if you're looking to reduce the heart disease uh going with it minimally is probably better so avocado is fun just don't do a ton of it i do highly recommend the book uh by dr caldwell uh, also seen, which is uh re- reversing it low? i can't remember what the name of the book is but look up dr caldwell also seen. he has a great book specifically on reducing um uh, or, switching uh, reversing heart disease they should check out and he talks about that specifically but i can't go into too much detail because i'm not a doctor i just know of the research that he's done specifically in that area so i would try that um let's see so emma do you have any tips on getting knife cuts more consistent in size and shape i think my knife skills are pretty good but i'd like to improve in this area i'm interested to know if you have any tips on this Emma, the biggest thing I can tell you on this is practice, 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 practice. They do sell cutting boards that have the measurements on them that actually have the exact size of the brunoise and all the actual the French cuts and stuff like that, which is great. Um, I don't own one personally. I've known people to have them, but that's probably a good Tool. If you're really trying to get the exact, consistent size and shape um, for your cuts down, the cutting board with the it's actually you know measured out on the cutting board, which is pretty nice to be able to do. I've seen most of those cutting boards in wood, which I was a little like, huh, that's odd because. You know, food is going to get in the grooves of where they put them in, though. So I would try to find a plastic version of that if you can, just because it'll be easy to wash and typically dishwasher safe, too. So, um, you know, the biggest thing I can tell you is practice, practice, practice. And if you want to cheat a little bit, try getting one of the cutting boards that have all the measurements out on them, which is a really nice thing to be able to have. All right. So, Aravant, if we cannot find organic cucumbers, then can we still use inorganic cucumbers in smoothies, or do we have to first peel off the skin to reduce the pesticides, or avoid avoid entirely? That's a matter of personal preference, Arvind. So, um, you know, cucumbers have such a smooth skin on the outside that they're typically really easy to wash any of the pesticides on the outside of them off so you can even do it like with cucumbers you can even do it like a vinegar water mix and it's not like half vinegar half water it's like a cap full of vinegar and like a gallon of water kind of a thing um and it'll take most of the pesticides off the outside now of course those pesticides are going to grow up into the plant and the inside of the cucumber as well so you're not going to avoid all the pesticides that are in the uh, conventional product but um if you know you're not going to have a smoothie just because you can't find the organic uh cucumber then I would definitely like, I would go for the cucumber. Um, you could peel it to be able to make sure you get all of that off, but I think just cleaning it really well is probably the best way to be able to go. A lot of people don't like to peel of the cucumber because it adds a bitterness to it. so you could peel it if you don't want the bitterness to it as well. Um, but yeah, you could go with either of those. so it's personal preference on that. Um, if you just want to stick with the organic cucumbers and not do it, that's okay too. But if it were me, I would probably just, maybe take a peeler and do stripes on the outside of the cucumber after I've washed it really well, um, and then use it for my smoothie. All right. So here's another one for Aravanda is, uh, is following a vegan, no animal product diet. What, uh, our best foods, what is our best food sources of calcium? So that's an interesting question too. I think, I think some of the best sources of calcium, um, is that uh, I've seen, it's actually from broccoli, uh, I'm just going to do a quick search here because there's always a good list. They also do make a, you know, vegan calcium supplements as well, too. Um, But I'm typically going to get them right for my vegetables. So, you know, soybeans actually have a lot of uh, calcium in them as well. Beans, peas, lentils. um, You know, those are probably the sources that I'd probably look for first. But they also do supplements as well if you're looking for those as well. But um, so soy products, those beans and lentils, probably a good place to start all right so our sourcing organic produce can be expensive uh, what are some tips you can share for cost up op- optimization as a consumer it's a great question so for working for Whole Foods as long as I did I work with organics quite a bit and you find that organic products are typically 20% more per pound ish um, or per you know product whatever it is um, more than a conventional product now what i do personally even though i worked at a grocery store that sold specialized in organics i didn't buy 100 organic groceries i just couldn't afford it most people can't um, and so what i did was i had to pick and choose where i wanted to buy organic uh, where i would always uh err on the side of bu- buying organic so i'd always buy organic if this was the case if there were tiny little pieces where pesticides could go into you know, so I, I use the cucumber as an example earlier, right? The cucumber can be washed off really easy. Like if it's a red pepper, you can wash that pretty easily. But if it's something like broccoli or like raspberries, those pesticides can get down in between all of those little pieces and it's impossible to clean up all the pesticides out of there. So in that case, for things like broccoli or raspberries or blackberries, with all those little tiny grooves in it, I'm going to buy 100% organic all the time, or I'm not going to buy it. Now, that's my personal preference, though. Um, Everybody's a little bit different in what they want to do. Sometimes that means you have to buy it frozen instead of fresh, just because it's out of season, and organic is a little harder to find if it's not in season as well. So that's my personal way to be able to go for um, organic versus conventional. Um, Now, ways to be able to get it a little less expensive, organic products as well, is if you're buying in bulk. So Instead of buying like a bag of beans and like a pre sealed you know resealable bag, go to the bulk departments of a grocery store to be able to see what they have. You'll typically be able to find organic ingredients for much, much cheaper using that method. As far as produce score goes, maybe try some local farmer's markets to be able to see. You can go directly to the farmer and get a better discount instead of having a middleman of a grocery store. Hope that helps a little bit. Sarah Ann, where do I buy kombu? Um, Kombu can be found at most grocery stores nowadays. They're typically, uh, they have, um, what are they like, international aisles, I think is what they call them. Um, But you'll typically find things, uh, you know, like, around soy sauces and, um, you know, different kind of things like that. They'll have kombu there, and it's typically in a bag, um, you know, with a couple sheets in them. You can also order them online. I know, you know, I've seen them on Amazon and stuff like that where you can get them too. So um, a host of different places, but most grocery stores and their specialty aisles, but you can also go to specialty stores to be able to find them. I know, like, the Whole Whole Foods markets typically always have them, but you're also going to find them in places like Kroger. It's in, in their international aisles as well kathy when i cook soybeans i soak them discard the water and add more water and freeze them defrost drain off water and cook okay so i think that's a tip is what you're saying kathy is when i cook soybeans i soak them discard the water add more water and freeze them then defrost and drain off the water to cook okay yeah basically what you're doing is getting rid of some of those toxins that come on the outside of them so that's great thanks for the tip on that um alfreda uh in a lot of vegan recipes i see egg and or cheese what's your thought on that uh i don't believe egg or cheese or plants maybe vegan does not mean plant-based well no it definitely does so that's who's ever using egg and cheese in a vegan recipe uh is misinformed um, because vegan definitely would not have any kind of an egg or dairy cheese in it now that being said there are vegan alternatives of each of those so you can have vegan cheeses and there are a huge amount of different vegan cheeses out there and you use them depending on what your method is if you need something to melt you know like mozzarella over a pizza you might use one style but if you want to do a slice of something like brie Um, For a cracker, you'll have a different style. So there's a host of different styles of vegan cheeses you can use. Now, eggs are a little little different. There are egg, uh, vegan eggs and egg replacers that you can buy. I think um, Follow Your Heart has like a little six-pack of egg kind of thing looking thing that uh, they use, and that's actually a vegan egg, and it's a substitute. They're typically in powders, but you can also use... uh, you know, like what we were talking about earlier some of the other things for like baking like apple sauces or flax seed or chia seed depending on what your you know use is for those but if you're looking at a recipe and it says egg uh, or cheese and it's in a vegan recipe they must be talking about something of like those or they're misinformed themselves hope that helps um Aravand. so uh if you're if you're feeling very hungry and wanted to eat something fast one what one healthy vegan dish or recipe would you repair or prepare um let's see if i'm really hungry and i have to eat fast you know it's one of the things is working as a cook for as long as i did i can make most meals pretty quickly um so kind of a go-to to make it fast and easy it'd probably be like a like a ramen dish of some sort i make really quick you know i'll typically use uh a ramen with like a brown rice ramen noodle instead of like a traditional flour and then I'll basically just chop up onions uh, and mushrooms and cube tofu and put it into a hot wok uh, start to get those cooked caramelize it up a little bit and then um, add my like you know other vegetables that I have that I typically chop up vegetables and keep in my refrigerator so I can throw them in and I'll be boiling water at the same time Toss it all together, and then do a sauce like a brown sauce of, uh, you know, tamari and ginger and uh, garlic, and you know maybe some other things like a mirin. There, I use like a like a black garlic sauce a lot too, or a fermented bean paste. And I'll basically kind of throw all those together really, really fast. So that's probably one of my go-to. Like, um, okay, everybody's really hungry. My my little toddlers love ramen noodles like that too. And I don't do it in a soup. I do it more as like a noodle, you know, kind of a dish. That's something that they love. So that's probably one of my quick, easy ones. Um, all right. So, Alfreda, are you familiar, familiar with what is the muslim bean pie? Mus, muslim bean pie. And do you have a whole food plant-based recipe for it? I think I've heard of that pie before, but I don't know what's in it. So I wouldn't be able to tell you how to make one for it. Um, sorry about that. But uh, if you email me at dan at ruby.com, um, I'll try to find something for you for it. Lisa, great great brunch ideas. Thank you so much. I'm glad you liked them, Lisa. Happy cooking. Um, Aravon, I've been told to eat more broccoli and Brussels sprouts. What are some creative oven-baked ways I can consume them? Wow, I love broccoli and Brussels sprouts in the oven. So um, let's see, for broccoli, I typically will just do a toss of salt and pepper on it. Uh, might put a little tamari on it and put it in the oven 350 degrees and you'll start to smell it when it starts to kind of blacken on the edges as they're roasting super duper good same with brussels sprouts super easy to do you don't need the tamari um on on the brussels sprouts as much i my brussels sprouts that i love to do i'll shave them really really thin so i'll cut them really thin and then saute them in a pan with onions and uh, red pepper uh, and deglaze with a little white wine Oof, that is so good with a lot of good freshly cracked pepper on it super good dish for that one as well too um so yeah let's see and then barbara is this being recorded i just joined and this is awesome Uh, i'm glad you liked it barbara and yes it is um, being recorded it should be available in a couple hours as the recording um you can find it both on our ruby platform and we posted a couple days later i think on youtube as well so you'll find recorded versions of this. You can also search all of our recorded live events from the past. If you go up to your dashboard and look in the um, the live section, you can search all of our old ones as well, too. So happy cooking, everybody. I'm glad that everybody got to join us and we got through all of your questions. Uh, join us next time for our office hours um, and happy cooking. Have a wonderful day.